Well, you'd open your Bibles with me. We turn this morning to the book of Romans 8. Romans 8, and we will read together verses 9 through 17. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I'd like to consider this morning the Easter message as we have it in this chapter, and especially in verse 11 where Paul writes to the Roman church, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. May God bless both the reading and the exposition of his word. Perhaps you looked with a bit of surprise on an Easter service to see Easter in the title of the sermon, but not to see the scripture reading to be one of the accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And indeed, of all the events that occurred in Jesus' life, as we have the four Gospels providing us the narrative, it is striking that the last week of Jesus' life occupies almost a third of the space. And when it comes to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, each of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John provide us with a detailed account of his resurrection. We don't have that for Jesus' birth, do we? We have a summary in Matthew, and we have the extensive passage of Luke 2. Before the rest, while it's certainly dealt with in an indirect way, we do not have a direct historical account in either Mark or John of the birth of the Lord Jesus. And yet, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, each of the inspired gospel writers spend considerable time giving us details that on the face of it, may be interesting, but we may say, why are they so significant? Well, the reason, of course, is clear. 
Paul tells the Corinthians in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ is not risen, then is our preaching empty and your faith is empty. We are found false witnesses of God. If the historical reality of Jesus rising from the dead is not true, then not only is what we are engaged in this morning empty and meaningless, it is actually a lie and a fraud. And so Christians need to be absolutely convinced of the historicity of the resurrection. There was a real man, physical flesh and blood, like you and I, who lived approximately 2,000 years ago in Nazareth, who died a real death on the cross and was laid in a real tomb. And that tomb on the first day of the week was empty. And he was alive. If what I have just said is not true, you and I are wasting our time this morning. And so it makes sense, doesn't it? The scriptures spent considerable time telling us about the first-hand accounts of the disciples, of the women, of those who met Jesus on that first day and in the 40 days thereafter when he was on earth to establish the, re the real fact of his resurrection. But there's one aspect of what happened on Easter morning that, while it is there in the Bible, has received less attention from the Christian church over history. And the question is this, children, let me ask you this. What was God the Father and God the Holy Spirit doing on Easter morning? Were they passive observers from heaven in terms of what was happening below? Or were they involved in some way? That, too, is an essential truth that we have to wrestle with if the scriptural account of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is true. And this morning, I want to pay a special attention to the work of the Holy Spirit on resurrection morning. And we do so through the lens of our text where Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead... Paul just takes for granted that you and I and the Roman audience for his letter know the details of the fact that, of course, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. He says that, too, has implications. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's consider that this morning under the theme, the Holy Spirit's Easter work. First of all, we'll see this provides confidence regarding the past. Secondly, roots our hope for the future. And finally, transforms our fears and tears into life and peace. If you want to know about the details 
of the Holy Spirit's raising Jesus from the dead, you will look in vain in the four Gospels. As I already mentioned, you can find lots of things about what Mary, the disciples, the soldiers, how there was a response to Jesus' death, but you don't find the details written of what the Holy Spirit did and how exactly it was that he raised Jesus from the dead. Paul just presents this as a given that we understand. So how does Paul know this then? Well, Paul understands something of the work of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And certainly he understands the role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life and ministry. You'll remember that before Jesus was born, when Mary was with child, that an angel came to Joseph, as we have accounted in Matthew 1, verse 20. And the angel said to Joseph, Mary is expecting, and that which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed. But it wasn't just prior to Jesus' birth. No, Jesus' ministry itself was anointed by and filled by the Holy Spirit. As he began his public ministry, you'll remember he came to the River Jordan where John was preaching. John baptized him, and what happened? Children, do you remember what happened? A dove came from heaven, sat on Jesus' head. And a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were united. Jesus did not come as a lone ranger or by himself, separate from the other two persons of the Trinity. There was a unity of purpose. And that wasn't just a unity that was expressed in well wishes from the Father and the Spirit. No, the Spirit accompanied Jesus through his ministry. And indeed, Jesus himself testified of that, didn't he, when he comes to the temple in Luke 4, and he quotes from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Oh yes, we could spend our entire time this morning going through the scriptures and pointing out the many texts which highlight that Jesus' ministry was one that was accompanied by the Holy Spirit. Now someone says, wait a minute. This is all right and good. But when it comes to Jesus raising, being raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit, as Paul says here, aren't you forgetting something? What about what Jesus said in John 10? When he said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down to myself, I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again, this command I have received from my Father. Isn't that Jesus himself saying, I'm in control, and I'm going to die, lay down my life, but then I'm going to raise it, be raised again? Does this not put the central agency on the Son? Someone else who really knows their Bible says, wait a minute. You're missing Acts 2, Peter's sermon. Because Peter in his sermon doesn't talk about the Son or the Holy Spirit. He talks about the Father, Acts 2.23. Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, 
whom you have taken, have crucified and set to death, God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Does Peter at Pentecost not seem to imply that it was the Father who raised up the Son? So if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, are we not hanging more on Romans 8.11 than Romans 8.11 can bear? Well, of course, the same could be said of any of these texts, and it is true. The Scriptures at various points point to the different work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But rather than understanding that as a problem or conflict, if we understand the doctrine of the Trinity, we actually see it's a reinforcement. Because while we believe in one God with three persons, there is a unity of purpose. And the entire carrying out of the plan of salvation is something the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed on among the three persons already before the creation of the world. All of history is a carrying out of that plan including the fact that the second person of the Trinity would come and leave the riches of heaven, would humble himself even to the death of the cross. Oh yes, there are in scriptures various works that are particularly attributed to different persons of the Trinity. We talk about God the Father and his creation. And it is true that in the work of creation, the Father is the one who is the primary actor in creation. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. But we open the Bible to Genesis 1 and we read the account. And what do we read there? The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The Holy Spirit was involved in terms of creation. And John, introducing his letter or his gospel in John 1, talks about the Word, speaking of the Son as the Word, He was in the beginning with God. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And so it is in all the works of God. There is a primary actor, there is one person in the Trinity who is primarily responsible for carrying out that act. And yet, at all times, the three persons of the Trinity are united in purpose and each carrying out their, their part. They are not passive observers. They are working along in the carrying out a divine purpose. And yet what we have in Romans 8 is not just a general reference to cooperation with the Father and the Son, but it is a reference to the very specific work of the Holy Spirit, which is a life-giving work. Indeed, the function of the Holy Spirit throughout the Scriptures is to give and to bring life. He does so at creation, but he also does so in the act of regeneration. When our dead hearts hear the gospel, but it does not penetrate. When the preaching is as if it is preaching in a cemetery of souls, 
How is it that people come to a living faith? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Taking the word, which would be dead words, and making them alive in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the author of life, and he has the power over death. And so it is especially appropriate and primary, essential actually to the working of the Holy Spirit, that it is the Holy Spirit who raised up Jesus from the dead. The work of the Holy Spirit is also a sanctifying word. Work. He inspires the word. He makes it alive in our hearts. We'll come back to that in a moment because that's what Paul is really talking about here in Romans 8, the indwelling of the Spirit, which comes, he says, as a consequence of him having raised up Jesus from the dead. And so it is that the Holy Spirit works in his people even today to make them holy. Paul understands how the Holy Spirit's raising Christ from the dead is necessary in order for Christian doctrine. Why did Christ have to become a human? Because the justice of God demanded that he who had sinned pay the price for sin. Jesus, the, the animals of the Old Testament, those sacrifices could not pay for sin. They pointed to, some, to the Lamb of God who could pay for sin. But in themselves, it would be unjust for God to accept the animals. Let me say so reverently, but... It's as if there was a debt to be paid. And with the animals, we come not with real currency, but we come with money that points to real currency, but is only effective in a monopoly game. It doesn't really pay the bills. So it was with the Old Testament sacrifices. It functioned as a picture of what Christ had to do. But Christ, a real man, man had sinned. Man had to pay the price. It would not even have come if Jesus were an angel. If Jesus had come as an angel, then it would be unjust of God to punish the angels for the sins of humans. It was in Adam that all died, and so it was the seed of Adam that had to pay the price. And so Jesus came, and he became truly man. And especially at the time of his death, he laid aside all the powers of the Godhead. Indeed, at the garden, he prayed. He felt the pain of the separation from God. And on the cross, Father, go God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken of God. God. Christ died and went to the tomb as a man. He laid aside the Godhead to pay the price for sinners. And if that is true, then Christ could not raise himself up because man cannot give himself life. The fact that the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead is proof that Jesus is truly man. And even further, 
The fact that Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit raised up Christ from the dead after having paid the penalty of sin is an affirmation that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit received and accepted his sacrifice, that the price for sin had been paid in full. If anything else had happened, the Holy Spirit would not have raised Jesus from the dead. The bill would not have been paid. And so the very fact that the Holy Spirit raises Jesus from the dead gives us confidence that Christ's sacrifice is real, that the debt has been paid. Now, why does Paul mention this here? Well, we need to step back and take a look at what Paul is doing in the book of Romans. He's not, first of all, talking about the Easter message. As I mentioned, he's taking it as a matter of fact that the Christians understood that all of the things I have just said are true, and therefore it had to be that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. In the book of Romans, Paul has been speaking really about a, a, the doctrines of grace, if you will. It's the closest we have in the letters and writings of Paul to a systematic theology. After his introduction in Romans 1, Paul begins at Romans 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, talking about the doctrine of depravity. As in Adam, we were all born, we all sinned. There is none righteous, no, not one. The first three chapters of the book of Romans described the fact that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and were subject to the justice of God. But beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21, Paul describes how that problem of sin is solved by Jesus Christ. He talks about, as in Adam all died, so in Christ we can be made alive. Chapter 4, he talks about how Abraham's faith in God was a faith in the righteousness that would be provided for God. And just as God provided Abraham, remember he's writing to a lot of people who look back at the Old Testament and wonder how the New Testament Christian faith relates to their Old Testament beliefs and the promises of God. And in Romans 4, God lays out very clearly how Abraham was justified by faith. Just as you and I can be justified by faith, that faith has been made possible. And chapter 5, 19 says, By one man's disobedience, many, made, were, many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many may be made righteousness. And then beginning in Romans 6, Paul deals, and in our present passage, he's in the midst of that section of Romans. He's dealing with the question, okay, if that's all true, if it's true that by nature we are dead in sin and have no hope, we're alienated from God and subject to his justice, but Christ has come and by faith in Christ we are made right with God, we are justified, how is it then that Christians still have to deal with sin and its consequences? Why is sin such a reality in the everyday life of Christians? That's the, that's the core question that Paul is dealing with in Romans 6 to 8. He begins by saying, does that mean then that sin doesn't matter? Shall we just sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
It doesn't mean we're indifferent to sin. In Romans 7, he wrestles with the reality that sin, the good that I would not, I do, the good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul is dealing with the reality that in the life of the believer, just believing in God doesn't suddenly solve all the problems. The problems are real. And then as he comes to chapter 8, that breathtaking chapter in which he pulls some of this together, he begins, there is therefore no condemnation. Don't let the presence of sin and difficulty in your life today cause you to doubt of the reality that Christ indeed is able to save to the uttermost. Your sins are not greater than his salvation. And then he says, we live by the Spirit. We are changed. Not only does God declare us righteous legally before God, he gives us his Holy Spirit to indwell us. Does that mean all is well? No. Verse 15, if we suffer with him, we may be glorified with him. The Spirit accompanies us, and the Spirit even groans with us in the midst of our challenges. The groaning of sin is real, so real that it affects even the empathy of God and the Holy Spirit. It's in this context of seeking to provide encouragement to believers in their still very real experience of pain and of difficulty, that Paul in our text makes this argument. You know that Easter is real. Isn't that what he's saying? You know that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. You know that Easter is real. Therefore, you can be sure that your battle with sin will also have an end. If Jesus was raised by God from the dead, if the Holy Spirit carried out that task of his work, do you think for a moment he's going to abandon you midway on your journey and not carry things all the way through? No, you can be sure your battle with sin will have an end, believer. The Holy Spirit's going to raise you too. And this isn't just about the past or the future. It's about today. This is what enables you to fight against sin and the curse as we experience it in everyday life. Oh, you see, what Paul is really saying here is that redemption is complete. You know the story, don't you? God created Adam and Eve perfect in the garden, Eve's sin. God comes to the garden, and what does he say in Genesis 3? Cursed is the ground for your sake. The impact of sin isn't just personal guilt for Adam and Eve. The very ground on which they walk is going to bring up thorns and thistles as a result of their sins. In toil, you're going to eat of it. You're going to have sweat and pain all of your days. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. You will eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your faith, you shall eat bread. Life is going to be difficult. And why is life difficult? Why is it that you came to church this morning facing real challenges and real pains? 
because Adam and Eve sinned. The punishment of God was a curse on the world. It's the result of sin. And that's not just a temporary thing. Genesis 1, in the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The wages of sin is death. Jesus took on that sin, Paul is arguing. And he went to the grave with that sin. Your sin, my sin. And he truly died. He truly paid the price. And he's saying, Christians in Rome who are discouraged, who are feeling the weight of the curse even now, know this. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will raise your mortal bodies. The Holy Spirit is in the business of giving life. And he's painting a picture of which John describes for us in Revelations 21. Compare Revelations 21 with what we just read in Genesis 3. John writes, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. The Garden of Eden, he kicked them out. They were separated. We come to the new heaven and the new earth, and he's going to dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And is that just his people are going to be there and God's going to be up? No. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. How does God make all things new? Whose work is that? Isn't that the work of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that what sanctification is all about? Being made new. Being prepared to live with God in a place where there is no tears, in a place where death is no more. Anything less than this would be an incomplete and an imperfect redemption, but praise God. Paul is making an argument this morning to our minds, to our logic. And he's saying, look at what happened to the Lord Jesus. If the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, do you think, in the midst of all of your trouble, can you think for a moment that he's not going to do the whole job? He's going to quit halfway? No. He's going to raise your mortal bodies that you may live with him. Now, perhaps you come and say, that's wonderful. And 
But I came, to wor- I came to worship this morning. I didn't really come for a catechism class. You know what? This makes sense for Bible study and for seminary, perhaps, or for holy people like me. But maybe you're sitting in the pew thinking, you know what? What you're saying seems so far removed from my everyday reality. I'm broken. I'm bruised. I'm hurting. My brain hurts too much to think about all this theology right now. Maybe you're looking at your watch and saying, when will he be done? I only need to get through today. I can't sort all of this out. I don't know all of your circumstances, but rest assured of this. Your circumstances are no different than the circumstances of the Church of Rome. I don't know much about their circumstances either, but I do know they were serious enough that Paul spends a considerable amount of his space in his letter to explain these things and to deal with people in the midst of suffering. Or perhaps it might be helpful to go back all the way to the first Easter and to take a look at the church that Jesus, whom the Spirit raised from the dead, met on that first day. Did you maybe come to church this morning like the women came to the tomb, afraid? Maybe you're like the women They had no standing in society. Their testimony would not be received in court. They weren't real people. They didn't have legal status. The women who came to the tomb, we don't know all of their history, but they appear to be without husbands, whether they're single or whether they're widowed. We don't know the details. What we do know is that to be a woman in that society without a husband meant you were on the margins of society and you were probably poor. You relied on others. These are the women that came to the tomb. They didn't come to the tomb on Easter morning expecting to find a living Savior. No, we read, when he rose on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She knew a thing or two about difficulty, don't you think? She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. When they heard her, that he was alive, had been seen by her, they didn't believe. Are there some women who came here this morning, bruised and battered, Struggling and not having your words even believed by those around you. Or maybe you came like the disciples came to the tomb. Except for Jesus, Peter and John, or Peter and John rushed to the tomb. They were the only two who, who followed Jesus after the garden. The rest of the disciples had fled. What were all the disciples thinking on that first day of the week? I can only imagine, have our last three years been in vain? We followed this teacher, now he's dead. Our hopes are gone. 
What was the point of it all? Have I just wasted three years? I'm going to be permanently derided and ridiculed for what I did. And then Jesus comes to them. They're gathered in a room together, no doubt commiserating with each other, trying to make sense of what this all means. And all of a sudden, Jesus is in the midst of them. And what, what do we read? They're troubled. Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Mark describes them as having unbelief and being hard of heart. Maybe they're like those who are in church today feeling somehow betrayed or ripped off by the church. Or maybe even betrayed by God. I think that's where the disciples were on Easter morning. And then there were those disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're walking back from Jerusalem to their homes. And the man joins them, and they are bewildered that he doesn't know what's going on and why they're so concerned. Have you not heard what has happened? Oh, they have a little more confidence. They have made sense of it all. They know what's happened, but they don't have it, an understanding in a biblical way. No, it took Jesus to exposit the scriptures before they realized where they were. Or maybe, maybe there's someone in church this morning who's like Mary. You considered Mary on Easter morning? We read, she stood outside by the tomb weeping. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Is there somebody here this morning who has a bruised soul because of grief? Perhaps you've lost a loved one. Perhaps you came to church this Easter morning reminiscing of one year, five years, ten years ago. You went to an Easter service with someone who's not with you anymore, and perhaps you're missing them this morning. Or perhaps you're grieving someone who's still alive but is no longer part of your life. Who knows what the circumstances are, but there are in the church those who grieve, those who mourn. And then there's Thomas. Thomas, who refused to believe the testimony of his fellow disciples he had just spent three years with, said, unless I see it with my own eyes, I won't believe. Jesus comes to him too. Have we talked about Peter yet? He of the bold promises, I'm never going to leave you. He became the deserter and the denier. 
The last time he had seen Jesus, Jesus looked him in the eye and the cock crowed three times. And the guilt overwhelmed his soul. Scriptures report a special appearance to Peter in John 20. The next day. But even in that account, we don't hear Peter's voice. John saw and believed on Easter morning at the tomb. We don't read that Peter did. Oh, yes, the church at Easter, the church at Rome, the church at Riverside is a mixed bag of hurting broken people with all the range of difficulties that a church has. And that's why this morning the Easter message of a risen Savior, but also the work of the Holy Spirit in raising that Savior is so comforting. Let's go back to Romans 8. You have your Bibles open... Look with me how it, how Paul works the logic to our text. He begins in verse 1, There is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Verses 1 to 3, he describes what Jesus did that the law could not do. God did by sending his own Son. And what's the consequence of that? Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit comes to live in you. He who raised Jesus from the dead in the past and will raise your mortal bodies in the future isn't sitting passively. No, he's alive and working in the hearts of believers even now. And that's the logic that brings Paul to our text. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, verse 9. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone of you does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not of his. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead will, dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Do you see what it said there? What does the Spirit give us? He gives us life. He gives us righteousness. He is present in us. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Paul writing to Timothy says, Finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. The crown of righteousness that Paul writes to Timothy refers more so to the righteousness, to that gift, that declaration of being righteous than it does to a crown and a reward. The focus is on the victory, and who is that for? What does that Spirit create in us? 
Paul describes it to Timothy as those who love his appearing. This is holy anticipation part of the consequence of the peace that the Spirit gives us. The Holy Spirit is often called a comforter in the Scriptures. And indeed, his past work provides us comfort and confidence. And his future work provides us hope. But his present work is that he lives in us. And he comforts those with fears and with tears. Indeed, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believer begins at the time of our regeneration and it grows through this life. And it will continue to grow. Sometimes we have difficulty with the notion of growing more and more. We say, well, when we die and we go to heaven, won't it all be perfect? No, it won't. It will be, comp- it will be perfect, but it won't be complete. It won't be complete until our bodies and souls are united. We will not have any regrets. We will not have any pains. But there is more still to come. And even after Christ comes in the new heaven and the new earth, is that going to be a static from that point forward forever? No. When we've been there 10,000 years, We've only just begun. We will grow in our knowledge of God. We will grow in intimacy and communion with the triune God. Sometimes we have difficulty understanding that concept of different degrees of joy. The best explanation, it is beyond our explanation. Let's not pretend for a moment we can wrap our minds totally around these things. Best explanation I heard was in a catechism class many years ago, which it said when it comes to degrees of joy and comfort, think of a, a cup and a pail and a barrel. And they're all overflowing. We may begin with just a cup of happiness, but it will be overflowing happiness. There's no more that we can take. But as we spend more time, as the Holy Spirit draws us into intimate fellowship and communion, our cups will grow to pails and our pails will grow to barrels. There will be objectively more joy and there will be objectively more glory for the triune God. And at the end of history, we'll continue to be amazed. With the writer to John, with the writer to the Revelations, John will delight in the fact that there will be no more curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants will serve him, and they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no night there. They will need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they will reign forever and ever with a triune God who carries out his plan. Indeed, also on Easter morning, when the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Let's pray together. Lord, we have attempted to open your word and to understand something of the truths of it, and we confess that the doctrine of the Trinity and how the three persons of the Trinity work together is something that boggles our minds and stretches 
our brain power. And yet, Lord, when we uncover even the beginnings of these truths, we see there are such riches there. The confidence that you indeed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are united in purpose in creating a world for your glory, and in that world, creating a bride for your delight. Lord, we know that as history unfolds, you not only have paid the price, but Lord, you're also preparing a future for that bride. And Lord, that even now you are engaged in that church gathering work in which you send out preachers to send the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, but you also come with your spirit and take the weak words of men and apply them to make them the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. And so we pray, work a mighty work of your spirit also among us this morning. We thank you for the privilege of worship. Be the after preacher, and we'll give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. For Jesus' sake only. Amen.